Welcome back to another episode of We Still Don't Have a Name. Uh, ben and, <laughs> oh no, you said you were this way, right, Mike? No, no, Mike, no you had it right. You had it Mike, right. Oh, all right, let me try this again. Welcome to another installment. <laughs> don't edit it either. Let, let's just go to. at it and I'll do it twice. <laughs> Welcome to another installment of Bible Study with Ben, Ben, and Mike, and Mike. And we're here, and we are uh, going through the book of James, and we're happy that you are able to tune in and join us. Uh, we've been getting a lot of positive feedback, which is good. Um, and today, as you can see, we are a little more casual. Ben changed his suit coat color, which looks scrumptious. And Mike, you decided to go open collar today, and me... I'm straight up wearing a t-shirt because my job is to make these other two gentlemen look great, sound great, and just make them sound and look as good as possible. So I'm doing a great job doing that. That's my spiritual gift. Make everybody else around me look great, feel great, and read scripture like a pro, which is another <laughs> thing that I'm going to try to redeem myself on. Uh, and if I get in that predicament again, we will see what happens. It will be a super fluty type of day today. <laughs> so today we're going to cover uh, James 2. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to pull them open and uh, be prepared to dig through God's word with us today uh, as we enjoy our time together and with you who are listening at home. So Ben, uh, you are going to open us in prayer. Take it away, my friend. The Lord be with you. And also with, also you. with you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you for that prayer, Ben. All right, uh, Mike, you are up to read us some scripture. Yeah, we're in James 2, 1 through 13. I'll be reading out of the ESV today, and we read in Jesus' holy name. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the, rich ones who, are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. 
For you who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so James 2, 1 through 13, we've got a pretty consistent theme as we go through that, the theme of partiality. I don't know about you guys, but partiality is not a word that I use very often in my daily life. Anybody got a better definition of partiality for me? I think I used partiality multiple times yesterday for the first time in a very long time. That's but I don't know. I kind of like feel different right now. You guys feel different? A little bit. I, I kind of feel a little older. It's strange. No, I'm feeling better rested for some I reason. Mean, wow, this is amazing. All right, so uh, for me, partiality, um, I think I would use the phrase uh, favoritism, which I don't know if it's a shorter word than partiality or not, um, but I'll have to look into that. So, And my dog is barking, so now I'm going to mute myself and Ben's going to take over. Yeah, favoritism is a good is a good word for it. Um, I think we all know <clears throat> that one pretty well. Um, you know, so if you're partial toward someone, you give them extra favor that you don't give to someone else. And so it's kind of an interesting and really long Greek word, isn't it, Ben? Yeah, prosopalapsia. And I think if I'm remembering um, right. It's two two Greek words smashed together. It's yeah, I think it's from prosopon and is it lambano? Maybe it's lambano, yeah. Face, um, which really comes out of the kind of Hebrew idiom as well to kind of lift up your face towards someone or receive their their face. So you have prosopon, which is face, and then lambano to receive, and they're kind of apparently. Funny story. Uh, Stop me if you guys heard the new, this one. But, I said, funny story about prosopon. Stop me if you heard this one. But that was one of the first Greek words that I memorized. And the only reason why I was able to memorize it was because somebody said, pour soap on my face. And I was like, oh, yeah. And ever since then, it's stuck. So, like, prosopon is one of those Greek words that I don't think I'll ever forget because of pour soap on my face. That's it. You guys probably heard that already, though, so. Yeah, I've, I've heard that story. You've told me that. But we've all got those goofy things where we remembered Greek words like uh, uh, door is thura, through a door, thura door. So that's mm -hmm. why I remember that one. I've got some probably more inappropriate ones that I won't share that stuck in my head too. You got any good ones, Ben? I don't think so. I, I just memorize them. You just remember them. Ben, Ben's just smarter than the rest of us by a lot, is what it is. He doesn't need any mnemonic devices. Nope. Just the way my brain works. So, what is seeing as you know we are all pastors and we are probably thinking about the context of our own churches and worship? What does favoritism within the church look like? How, how do people show it? Are, are you? Oh, okay. Uh, I was going to say um, favoritism one in church can be very divisive, 
Okay, first off. But I think one of the ways that it can be very divisive is um, when you show favoritism, there's kind of like a leniency towards sin for that individual. Like, and I don't want to say like they can get away with it, but, um, you know, like from a standpoint of church discipline and whatnot, if you're showing favoritism, like as a pastor, that really hurts because then people see it as like, oh, well, it's not okay for me to do this thing, but somebody else can get away with it for some reason. And it could be a host of things. Like, um, I'm sure most of the people, as we're talking about favoritism, instantly think about, well, the person who tithes the most is obviously our favorite. And I don't, I don't know about you guys and how church works. I mean, some, sometimes in, in terms of, uh, overall congregational size sometimes it's not a possibility but for the most part like in our congregation i don't know how much people give um my treasurer takes care of that and one of the cool things is i i really want to know one of the things that i really want to know is um has a person started giving for the first time because then i want to reach out to them and say hey we we received your gift we're grateful for that gift or has a person stopped giving recently for a reason and not because I want to make that person feel guilty but because oftentimes a person stops tithing because something in their life has happened and as a pastor I want to reach out to that person and say hey hey if something has gone on and you want to get together and talk I, I want to talk to you and I want to support you through that so I think a lot of people think like from a pastoral standpoint, favoritism comes from money, but it doesn't necessarily have to do that. I think too of favoritism in terms of age, like sometimes if you are within the same age frame as another person, people might view that as you showing favoritism towards them because you want to do stuff with them or you want to get together with them. You, you hang out with them. You're doing extra things with them. Uh, and some people from the outside might view that as favoritism. But I think to kind of loop back around, one of the most divisive ways that favoritism can be shown in a church is the way that, the way that sin is accepted, which, which it should be not at all. But a lot of times with favoritism, sin can go overlooked or like not wanting to be touched in someone else's life and then they see the hypocrisy and you pointing it out in their life. So it, it can be dangerous and divisive in that way. Well, yeah, Mike, you mentioned money uh, and giving in a church is oftentimes that favoritism gets shown. And I've, yeah. I've heard stories about churches where the, you know, the biggest giver is openly living in sin, like things that should be called out, things that you should say, Hey, this is sin. Your soul is in danger. I love you enough to, uh, to call out your sin and bring you under the discipline of the church. Um, but it just doesn't happen because people are afraid that the check is going to quit coming into the coffers. And, you know, that's right. the check that keeps the lights on. And so we don't dare and we can't do that. And man, that is a, a really wrong and really broken way to live that doesn't actually trust in God for your provision. And the thing about church discipline and calling out sin, you know, people sometimes really get up in arms and worried and freaked out about it. But like church discipline is one of the most loving things that you can do to someone. Pull them aside and say, brother, I care enough or sister, I care enough about your soul to tell you that this is sin, to tell you that, that this is a big issue and 
man, you need to repent. You are headed down a path away from God. You need to repent and come back. And even as the steps go further and seem more, you know, scary, bringing in others to, you know, talk about it and, and saying it to the church, the goal of church discipline is never to destroy the person being disciplined. It is always to restore them and to see repentance and see them brought back into the family of God. Um, but yeah, um, if you're showing favoritism, you may not want to do that. And that's not really favoritism. It's actually damaging to them and dangerous for them to not call out others. I think of, um, I think of the friendship between King David and Nathan, um, and how they were friends and at, at all points, the prophet could have just ignored it and been like, no, no, I'm not going to address that. He's my friend. He's also the king. He could have me killed. And instead, we see a great deal of healing in that passage. And I think it's Second Samuel. I think so, right? Where's the passage where it's like, you're the man? Um, I think it's Second Samuel, uh, like 12, 12. Is that what it is? 12 or 13? Yeah. Um, and I think that that goes hand in hand with this favoritism is that we can see the damage that favoritism could have caused, but instead he didn't show favoritism. He convicted David and David was then released of that burden. And I think Mike, that's what you're attesting to is that kind of encouraging someone to be released from that is one of the greatest things that we can do um, yeah. as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Well, and, and that story you just told about David and Nathan, we actually get a picture into David's mind and, and heart, <clears throat> you know, in Psalm 51, verse mm -hmm. two, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before you, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, I, in this passage, yeah, there it is. Uh, it talks about wasting away. I'm trying to find it. I can't find it because I'm, you know, just looking at it for the first time. But David was in agony over his sin that was left unconfessed. And the prophet Nathan, that story cuts right to the heart. It's brutal. Like David had just said, kill the man, right? He should die for his sin. And then he hears, you are the man. And it doesn't kill him. It, it sets him free because he's right. finally repenting. Right. All right. So here we go. We're in James 2. We kind of hit that thought of partiality kind of as a whole over the top. Let's get into the verses. Uh, verse 1, show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Um, so as we are followers of Christ, we're called Christians, right? Um, we should be striving and attempting to live our lives like Christ, that we'll never do it perfectly, and it's not to earn our salvation, but because of the mercy of God. Um, why would partiality not be something that we show to others? Can we think of any parts of Scripture that might reveal to us a characteristic of God that would would show us this is a bad choice, maybe? God himself is impartial. Um, Prove it, Ben. Where's that in Scripture? <laughs> I don't have the direct <laughs> quote on me. Um, but James talks about actually in, in chapter one that, or is it James one or is it, I'm thinking of first Peter. First Peter speaks of how God judges impartially. Um, that's one area or one verse, uh, 
the scripture, but um, yeah, so it's, it's rooted in, you know, God doesn't regard the, the outward appearance, you know, if we remember back again to um, first Samuel and uh, Samuel goes to anoint David as King, you know, and he's looking at all the, all of David's brothers and they're, you know, they're bigger than David, they're stronger than David, you know, they look more kingly, you know, as it were. And Samuel is thinking, oh, surely one of these must be the one that God has chosen. But God tells him not to judge by outward appearance, you know, that God doesn't look at our outward or externals, but he looks at the heart, for example. And so um, when we make these kind of superficial external uh, distinctions, you know, we're, we're basically saying that some, some people have more value than others because they're because of external things they're rich they you know or or one is poor or one has a lot of influence or one doesn't have any influence or so and so you know grew up in this city or that suburb and this person's from the slums or whatever you know we make all kinds of external distinctions um and that really i think uh ends up in one case denies the the reality that all human beings are created equally in god's image and we are not to make judgments according, you know, to devalue another person or value another person simply because of, you know, because of externals, you know, which so many of those things we have absolutely no control over whatsoever. Um, but we do this all the time in our society. We're, we're full, but we make judgments like this all the time. Oh, that person is too old to be a value for us or that unborn baby is not valuable to us or so on and so forth, whatever it might be, whatever we might judge it by, it doesn't have to be, you know, wealth, it could be, you know, ethnic background, it could be whatever it is, you know, whatever job you have, you know, oh, you, you know, you clean out the sewers, you know, you're less a person than the CEO of a big company. You know, we make these kind of judgments all the time, but God doesn't judge by those standards. And um, along with this too, is that, you know, God shows his value of all humanity by sending his son to die for all people. Um, and he makes no external distinctions on who is, on who is saved. He has died for all. He brings people from every tribe, tongue, nation, every station in life into, uh, the kingdom of God by his grace. And I believe it's St. Paul that speaks about how as Christians, we should no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. And that's exactly what we're doing when we make a big deal about these externals. Um, we're making fleshly sinful judgments, um, and we're not judging with right judgment, as God does. Um. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, Ben, uh, Romans 2.11 is a, a good verse. You had some really good stuff, too. Uh, especially with the anointing of that's why it was a super fluty comment it was super fluty but romans 2 11 there is no partiality with god um kind of lays it all out and you're right it is it is kind of throughout scripture that god is not partial christ died for everyone we all stand in the same place as is his beloved creation created in him his image and also after the fall we share a a similar position as as condemned in our sins and trespasses apart from christ right yeah, and that's that's a good point too. You know, nothing of your, you know, no externals are going to matter in the in the judgment. So, 
you know, you could be the richest person in the world. You could be, you know, whatever, whatever society deems as valuable or privileged or whatever, it's not going to matter one bit when it comes to judgment day before God, because he will not judge you on those externals, but on the faith or unbelief of your heart. And so, you know, he is, he is not only impartial in his salvation, but he's also impartial in his judgment. You are, you are either condemned in your sins or you are saved in Christ which is great stuff. Uh, as James kind of continues on and tells that story of, you know, the imaginary story that people have probably experienced about the poor and the rich man coming in and saying, here, you sit in a good place and the poor man, you sit down here by my feet. Like, we understand this story. It, it makes sense to us. But also it's kind of a major cultural difference, Right. Have you ever been to a big fancy dinner where, you know, as you walk in, someone checks you out and says, oh, you're, you're good enough. Come to the head of the table or you're not. Go to, the, go to the foot. Like when I get together with people for dinner, we like throw the kids in a corner so the adults can have peace. And then we eat our, you know, pizza standing up. So like what, what are we missing culturally here from 2000 years ago in Jerusalem to, you know, Montana or Rhode Island or Iowa? Right? Iowa? Did I say it wrong? Iowa? Yeah. yeah. That's where you are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think some of it is that, you know, in the synagogues, um, there were, you know, in that, in that culture, where you sit was a, was an indication of your honor. So that's, you know, like Jesus will talk about this, you know, and he tells a, you know, parable and you go to a, to a banquet, don't sit at the head of the table in a high position because then when someone else who has more honor than you or whatever, you know, they're given that spot and you are publicly demoted to the, you know, to the castaway end of the table, you know, um, but rather sit in a lowly table. place and then you can be brought up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so in that culture where, where one sat had, had indications of your status. Um, or the clothes that they wore, you know, you know, only the, only those who are really, you know, rich could have, you know, gold rings and fine clothing, you know, um, and we lose some of that because our culture, we're rich enough where many of us can have, you know, nice clothes, you know, but you still see some of that stuff, you know, like, well, you know, you don't have the thousand dollar jacket or something like that or whatever you I don't even know. I don't pay attention, but you know, super, super expensive, you know, articles of clothing, you know, we still kind of wear that as a status. So, you know, we have the biggest names and, and the most expensive clothes, or we drive the fanciest car, you know, or whatever, have the biggest house, things like that. We still do that kind of thing. Um, but I don't think we typically have people sit on the floor in our churches, <laughs> um, which is what's going on here with the poor the poor person is like, you know, go sit down by my feet because you're not worthy of a chair. You know, um, we don't have that so much, but we make a lot of the same kinds of distinctions, you know, and um, or we want so-and-so to come to our church because look at their fancy car or their fancy house or whatever. You know, we do all we do this all the time or, you know, someone comes into our church with, you know, shabby clothes and maybe we say, oh, you're not dressed well enough to be here. I don't really want to talk to you. You know, you look kind of dirty and grungy and so on. You know, we we do the same kinds of kinds of things, um, even though we don't have, you know, the exact same markers of status. Yeah, I think a lot of it is definitely subconscious. 
where in the culture, as they were talking, like you alluded to, Ben, that was something that was much more outright. One of the other things, too, is now social status um, can somewhat be a little bit grayed, especially due to like credit cards and stuff like that. But even all of those have limits. You know what I mean? So like you can have people who buy, can af can't afford it, but can buy it and then worry about paying for it later. Whereas when this was written, there really wasn't a situation where that was possible. Usually the people who had it had the means in order to pay for it. Therefore, it was a social status where now you can kind of gray that area a little bit. And as long as you can keep people at a, fur, uh, a far enough distance, you can kind of put up a, any facade that you want to, which will eventually decay and break down because they always do. But I think that that's kind of interesting where now it, it was a part of culture then, but now it's much more like subconscious. And so a part of me too, like this might be a rabbit trail that we're not really ready to get into, but like in terms of divisiveness, do we think that it's worse that this is a, like something in the subconscious rather than in the forefront where it seems like it is when James is talking about this here, like this is in the forefront, rich people, they get the, they get the prominent place up front, poor people, you don't even get a chair where now you could kind of skew that a little bit more. And I wonder if, if that's more hurtful in the long run, than it is but then we're talking about feelings and like yeah let, I, I, who has feelings right i kind of maybe we shouldn't talk about that but that's an interesting kind of dichotomy that that we're dealing with in the world that we live in today for sure yes it is yeah <clears throat> well let's keep on keep on trucking here in james um, <clears throat> James tells us that when we make those distinctions, we've become judges with evil thoughts, um, which I think is incredibly accurate, right? If I look at Ben and I say, Ben, you are dressed so finely today. Hold up your wonderful cross. You have a very shiny, wonderful cross with Luther's rose on it. And I look at Mike and say, Mike, you're... You're in like totally a purple disheveled polo. and a mess. Oh goodness, yes. And so I say Ben's a, a better person. He he deserves more than than Mike does. Which is probably accurate on multiple statements, but yeah, I you keep driving that point home. I'm but, like especially in the context of the church, how horrible is that? I mean, we understand what the word of God says about us, that that we are God's beloved creation that we are fallen and all in need of the grace of God. And to make those distinctions is to say the opposite of what God says. Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, definitely a wicked and evil, terrible thing to be judging people and separating them like that. Yeah. As, uh, as James continues, uh, he, he says that the poor in the world um, are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So is James saying that simply by not making a lot of money, you, you get to go to heaven? And also, that seems to not be what some televangelists are preaching. So what's the disconnect here? <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of the same thing that's going on in the, in the Beatitudes when Jesus talks about the, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. And it's kind of a, 
kind of two aspects going on. I mean, there is a reality that oftentimes, you know, as Jesus will draw this contrast a lot, it's a lot more difficult, humanly speaking, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven um, because it's easy to trust in our stuff. Whereas when we don't have anything, you know, then, then there's nothing to trust in, um, in that regard. Um, but what Jesus is really getting at, though, the poor in spirit are, are those who recognize their sinfulness, that they have no um, capital before God. Um, and I think James is talking about kind of both aspects, too, because on the, on the face of it, you know, again, there, there are these distinctions being made between rich and poor. But God has not just gone to the rich and saved them and left the poor aside. Um, he has included them in his kingdom, uh, and God says throughout the scriptures that he cares for the poor um, and that he has not, you know, he does not abandon them, he has not forgotten them, he cares for them, and they, when they're so often cast aside by those who have much. Um, and so it gives us kind of a visual thing, too, that, that it's the opposite of our human distinctions. We tend to not um, favor poor people, though we do have that. Phenomena. I don't know if it's still popular today or not, but what, let's see, what was it? Where basically like there are these, these guys basically saying, you know, we're, we're the real Christians because we've given up our stuff and we go live, you know, a life of poverty, you know, and, mm. and so on as, as if God commands us to be impoverished, like, you know, so we had some of that too, where you could just flip that on its head. Now, now you're doing the same thing. You, you've just switched spots. You're not judging uh, the poor with wicked thoughts. You're now judging the rich and you're saying, well, I'm more spiritual uh, because I don't have anything. So we can, we can flip that around. It's perfectly, you know, doable for rich or poor to show partiality um, and to trust their station in life. And so um, we don't want to, to go there because that's not what God teaches us. It's not that, oh, if you don't have money, you're automatically into the kingdom of heaven. Um, but it does demonstrate to us that God works the opposite of how we often, how we would value things in the same way that he chooses the foolishness, the foolish things of this world uh, to, to save people um, and not the, not the wise things or what we perceive to be wisdom. So he kind of flips those things around. And we humans are so prone to the ditches, right? <clears throat> We're prone to the ditch of either, you know, going off and saying, well, I'm, I'm wealthy, so that must mean that God loves me and he's blessed me and I'm going to get heaven or because I have all this, I'm going to earn it. Or the other way, well, I have nothing. Well, I take a passage like this and say, well, because I have nothing, then, you know, I'm suffering and I'm more spiritual and I deserve that too. Um, the, the old man is never contented to just repent and say, I am a, I am a wretched sinner who must die. And, uh, Jesus died for me. The old man is never going to do that. He wants to trust, uh, either, you know, being poor and suffering or being rich and having all the things, but never, never the way that God has, has designed and intended, which was the point you made, Ben. And we can also think about it in this way too, like as we come together, you know, to worship and we come to the Lord's table together, we are all receiving there the exact same forgiveness of sins, the same body and blood of Christ. Um, and, you know, if we go, you know, that should be a call, you know, to us as well, that, that we are all one family of God. We are brothers and sisters in God. We, you know, we don't have, um, you know, we have the same status, right? You know, 
St. Paul says that we're dead in sins and saved purely by the grace of God, right? Um, that, that applies to all of us. You know, it doesn't matter how much money I have or don't have. doesn't matter anything of that. No externals matter whatsoever um, in that. Everything is, is level in that regard. And so, you know, and we, that can be something that can help us if you think about those things like, oh, you know, when I'm tempted to, you know, make distinctions between my brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, yet here I am at the Lord's table with them, receiving the same gifts of God, the body and blood of Christ for the same forgiveness. And, you know, that, that can, can help us understand that, you know, I'm no better than my brothers. I wasn't saved because I was better than so-and-so, you know, we have no claim to that whatsoever because it is purely the grace of God that any of us are saved. Then we can, uh, we can look past the externals and we can understand that, no, they have the exact same status before God as I do. We are both sinners saved completely by God's grace. And this is all, you know, gift that God has given to us. And so that is something that should be, you know, different as we're about Christians and Christian uh, churches. Um, it was that Jesus says to his disciples that basically, you know, you talk about how the, the Gentiles or unbelievers kind of lord their authority and their position over each other. And he says, it shall not be with, with you. There is no hierarchy in that in that sense, we are, we are all equally, you know, standing before God as sinners. We're equally dependent upon the grace of God in Christ. And so, you know, so yeah, the Lord's Supper can help us with that too, because we receive the exact same gifts of God, the exact same forgiveness. And there I am, you know, having communion, koinonia, participation with my brother and sister in Christ. And there's all those distinctions, all those externals should just vanish between us and we shouldn't regard each other in external ways like that. that makes some sense yeah what you what you just said there ben reminded me of that piece of paper that was in luther's pocket as he died right roughly it said um you know we are beggars this is true and as as we come to the table we come as we come as beggars right we come and just simply receive what god has to offer it's not that we've earned it it's not anything about us. We are there with our brothers, Koinonia, like you said, receiving the same gifts because we are the same wretched sinners that, that need those good gifts at the table. Good stuff. You know what? There's something that's really great about this little snippet, you know, verses one through seven, is as I read it, I'm more encouraged to see that this is not how God treats us. You know, like oftentimes as I look at situations and as I view it from an external um, viewpoint, I am so grateful that God does not deal with us in the way that we deal with other people. Like, like that is something that is so incredibly real that I am blown away by. Like, could you imagine if God treated you the way that you treat somebody else or even like even like the way that sometimes you treat god like imagine if he returned it in the same way like that that's just it's upsetting like to think and but encouraging at the same time like it makes me discouraged that that's the way that i choose to act but encourage that we worship a god who really views this and is like yeah i did it perfect and and it's all for you and so as i think about you know the poor being rich 
like richness and spirit is something super encouraging for us. And the only reason why I have this like on the ready is because I literally just had confirmation last Sunday. And this was a question in one of the red books, but one of the aspects of justification is that we are made rich in Christ through faith. And the passage that they share is second Corinthians eight, nine, where it says, for, you know, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Like, I, I, lo I love that aspect of that humiliation of Christ where he took on poverty. He left richness to become poverish so that we could have his richness. And it's great. And I'm sure, like, the King James has a different translation, but I'm not going to read it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you, you reminded me of a verse, Mike, and I, I couldn't remember where it is because I had to look it up. Because um, you talked about uh, Jesus, you know, leaving richness, taking on poverty um, so that we might become rich. And it reminded me of Hebrews 12, 2, hmm. uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, that verse always just, it, it kills me because it's amazing. Why did Jesus do it? It was the joy that was set before him. The yeah. joy was your salvation, that you might be brought into a right relationship with God, that you might be forgiven, that you might be adopted as God's children, so that you might inherit eternal life. Uh, totally. That was the joy set before Christ. Yep. Amazing stuff. <clears throat> well, we haven't specifically talked about the rich here in verses six and seven, but I think we've kind of covered it. Um, James says, are not the rich the ones that oppress you and drag you into court? Are not the ones, are they not the ones that blaspheme uh, God's name, the name by which you were called? Um, James isn't saying here that every single person with, with money does that, right? That's not the point he's making. Yeah. Uh, he's speaking to a specific context context there, and I don't know exactly the situation um, other than just inferring by what he said, you know, um, these rich people that they were so, you know, desperate to impress are the very ones who are oppressing them. And um, yeah, it's all completely backwards in, in that way. Um, but it's, but it's kind of an interesting thing, you know, we could maybe think about it as, you know, there are, there are churches that are so, you know, desperate to impress unbelievers and bring them into church because I don't know, they want their money or whatever, you know? Um, and not that, not that they're necessarily oppressing, not pressing us, but I think of that, the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called. I mean, that's, that's what unbelievers do. They do not, trust the name of christ they do not call upon his his name in in faith um but they blaspheme his name and yet those are so often the ones um in the church at large that we're trying to you know cater to um not not the ones who are actually have faith or actually desire to you know learn the faith and hear of christ and trust in him but the very ones that don't want anything to to do with Christianity or, or not. So I, I don't know how, if that 
fits perfectly or not. But that was one thing I thought of. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you unpacked blaspheme a little bit because that's another church word that we don't often use in our daily lives. So it's good to, good to explain that one just a touch. Well, you guys ready to move into paragraph two? What do you think? Sure. We'll go for it. Uh, All right. James says, uh, if you're ready to fill the royal law of scripture, James chooses some really interesting words to describe the law. He called it the law of liberty earlier in chapter one. Now he calls it the royal law. Is there anything significant about calling it that? Well, it seems, you know, perhaps he's, he's drawing attention to that. This, this law is kind of the, the law of laws as it, as it were, um, to love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus says is the, is the second greatest commandment. And it fits very well since James is talking about our relationship with other people that he would bring up, you know, out of Leviticus and out of the mouth of Jesus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so it seems to be like, this is, this is the supreme law, the best law. Um, well, and I, I think too, I it, en- it encompasses a lot as well, like this royal law. And I, so here we go again, attributing a quote to Luther, which I don't really know if it's the case <laughs> or not, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. And if anybody wants to stop me, you, you definitely can. And I will not put up a fight. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that Luther I want to say that it's in his large catechism where he says, if you break any of the 10 commandments, you have also broken the first commandment. And so I think like this idea of the, the Royal law being, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Well, well, first off, if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, the entire reason why we can love is because God first loved us And so if we're not able to love our neighbor, therefore we're not putting God in a spot where he's able to love us. And so therefore we've broken the first commandment because we put something in its path. And so I don't know if Luther actually said that, but I feel like he did where he was like, if you break one of the commandments, you've also broken the first one. What do you think? Yeah. um, And this kind of goes into the, um, well, circle back but you know when james you know says in verse 10 you know keeping the whole law but failing and one point is guilty of all of them so kind of going off of what you were saying my you know if we look at the at the small catechism and how luther explains the ten commandments you know he begins you know with the first commandment shall know the gods what does this mean we should fear love and trust in god above all things right and then each subsequent commandment, he explains it with the with the very similar language. We should fear and love God so that we do this or don't do this, right? So he's he's demonstrating a connection between all ten. And how is it that we can fear, love, and trust in God above all things? Well, this is what faith does, right? So so if we understand that this is what faith does, then you know, on to two through ten, we should fear and love God. So okay, having faith we do this or we don't do this, you know, and so they're all connected together. And, and so if we, you know, and St. Paul will do this too, as he says, you know, covet to covet is to commit idolatry. So he's tying it in also to the first commandment. And so, you know, if we don't keep the first table of the law, you know, uh, 
commandments one through three. Um, so if our relationship with God or how we relate to it, if that is not right, you know, so remember our Coram Deo, Coram Mundo, right? So vertically speaking, if that is not in place correctly, uh, then there's no way that we can keep the second table, right? And that's what, you know, Mike, you were touching on that too. So there, there's no way that we can keep the second table if the first table is not in place. But likewise, we can flip that around too and say, if we are not keeping the second table, it is demonstrating that we have problems in the first table. Because again, the only way that we can love our neighbors, the only way that we can fulfill uh, the law is through faith, which is the vertical aspect. And if that's not there, then even though we can do all kinds of external things, they're not actually good. We're not actually keeping the law. Um, and so the whole law then is a, is a unit together. And we can't parse it out or like grab out a piece and say, well, if I, I broke this one, but I'm good to go on the other ones, you know? And so any, any sin is coming out of unbelief and unbelief uh, fundamentally is a breaking of the first commandment. And so there is no way to, you know, kind of separate them out and be like, Oh, well, I kept this part. You know, I kept most of them, but not, not just this one little, thing, you know? And so, so yeah, to, to stumble at one point then is to be guilty of all of them. Yeah. I think so often people have this concept uh, that there's like a, you know, like a heavenly scales, right? Mm. Where your good works go into one and your, your bad works go into another. So your sin goes into one bucket and you're helping out people and loving your neighbor goes into another bucket. And however, which one's heavier when you die, you know? That's, that's how God's going to judge you. But um, I don't think James allows for us to, to think that way or, or believe that way here, does he? Because um, he says you keep, keep the whole law but fail at one point, you're guilty of everything. So mm-hmm. your, your sin bucket's full. It's which, I, which I think is good. I mean, once again, like we talked about, I think it was two weeks ago, there, there's no wiggle room here. And within the wiggle room, there's freedom. Like, like if we were... If we're capable of wiggling out of sin, we will do it literally any chance we get. If if we can if we can self-justify the bad decisions and choices that we make in order to not have to deal with them, we will take that every chance we get. And so I think James here again gives us so that there's no wiggle room. You you fail. And and in failure there is, there is healing, um, which I think is tremendous. One of the illustrations that I always use for passages like this about um, for whenever you keep the whole law of a fail in one place, you're guilty of it. I, I always tell people, um, look at it, and then we can totally, oh, man, I, if this illustration falls apart, I'm going to laugh so hard, which is great. Uh, this might be straight-up heresy, kind of like, Oh, uh, the Trinity, the Trinity is this, 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 and this. It's an apple. It actually is, right. Yeah, uh, it's an egg, you know? No, it's none of those things. Stop trying to explain the Trinity. The Trinity. But, all right, so here we go. Here's the illustration that I use with this sin in one place. I think about a chain, all right, that has interlocking links. I don't know if you can see that with my sausage fingers, you know? But here it is, all right? And... Thank you, Mike. Yes, you have much slender. They're dainty. They yeah. are very dainty. I, lo- I like it. Very nice. All right. So anyway, 
if we look at sin in in that if we look at our life in that way like it's this chain it's this chain with interlocking um things if you break one interlocking unit what happens to the chain it's broken yeah right like like you'd need to get it fixed there's no way of wearing the bracelet in its intact form if you break it anywhere correct and so that is similar to our relationship with God. If we break it in one spot, it's not like, oh, you can like limp around on it and it's fine. No, it's, it's broken. Like you, you can't use it. It's, it's no longer usable. And I think that if we looked at it in that sense, I think that our ability to comprehend what sin is in the eyes of God, it might be helpful, but you guys can shred it if you want. <laughs> Huh. No, it's just like those really annoying Christmas lights, right? Where one one bulb goes out and the whole thing's wrecked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't matter how many sins you have to make you a sinner. Like one sin, and you are liable for judgment, right? You're a sinner if you have sinned. So yeah, I think your illustration yeah. tracks. Ben's is better. Yeah, than the yeah, it is. Ben's is better. I think it's, I think that's something important for us to really think about though. Cause I think so often we approach God as if he grades on a curve, right? God doesn't yeah. grade, grade on a curve. His, yeah. we kind of think that, well, as long as I do my best, you know, uh, you know, God will be okay with me. No, he actually demands absolute perfection. Yeah. And that's, that's it. You must be perfect in every single aspect, not only in every single action, but every single thought, in every single word, every single moment of your entire life. Yep. Like that's, that's his standard perfection. Yep. And we often just, you know, approach as, Oh God, if I do, you know, as long as I do well enough, then, you know, the curve will help me out and I'll get a better grade than I, than I otherwise would have. But God doesn't grade on the curve. His demand is perfection. And, and one of the ways that we know this is because he had to send his son to live a perfect life, a life without sin. Why would he have to do that if our best was good enough, right? right? Jesus wouldn't have needed to be perfect if we could get by with just our best. And so, um, and so when you have a perfect requirement, then it doesn't matter how small we might think the infraction is, you're done, right? If that's the standard. So be perfect you or you're going to hell. That's what Ben says. We will see you next week. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you won't no, even you're... close in prayer. That's it. <laughs> now, Ben, you are yes, but you that are is spot the on. Full on. brunt of the law. Yeah, but then once we reach that point, what the best part is is like once you reach that point of of seeing that mirror and being like, "Man, I stink as a human being." I'm a terrible individual. Then the last four words in this passage ring truer than ever. Mm. Like when you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm terrible. I'm a horrible person. And then if you're like, all right, uh, here's the benediction. Like, obviously you, you need to then tell people, here's the last four lines of, of this passage that we're going through, which is mercy triumphs over judgment i mean that's it that's the that's the gospel in a nutshell and we and we don't get it that often from james and so therefore i think it's even sweeter like james when he does proclaim the gospel to us it is so 
freeing. Like when you read through Paul, Paul does a really good job of like giving you a half and half where he's like, yep, you're a terrible person. But in the same, here it is, but, and then I'll give you all the gospel. Like here it is. Like sometimes Paul can't even get through a whole verse of law without giving you gospel in the same verse where James is like, I'm going to just, here's the band hammer just coming down on you. <laughs> over and over and over again and then you get those four words at the end mercy triumphs over judgment and you're like oh there's hope there it is mike that's a great point i mean we like the gospel because the gospel is good news right christ died for you he paid the price for your sins but if we avoid the law and we never preach it or teach it or read it, and all we hear is Jesus died for you, what does that even mean, right? If you don't understand how wretchedly sinful and terrible you are and how far you have fallen short of God's glory and what you deserve, man, what Jesus did doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. If I'm only kind of sinful or mostly dead, uh, who cares about Jesus, but I am wretchedly sinful and completely dead. And I need Jesus day in and day out. Yep. Agreed. Well, Mike pulled us right to the end of verse 13 there with mercy triumphing over judgment. Oh, but I mean, there's, there's some good stuff in 10 and in 10 and 12, like 10, 11 and 12. So like, I mean, don't skip over that. Cause oh, that's okay. We'll go back. Uh, so we, we hit 10 a little bit. You know, if you, if you uh, break one point, you're guilty of breaking it all. Uh, and then James expands on that. He said, don't, the same God who said, don't commit adultery said, don't murder. So if you do one or the other, guess what? You're done messed up. <laughs> you're a transgressor, right? <clears throat> and I feel like we covered those verses pretty well. Verse 12 is a, is a call from James back to uh, really loving your neighbor, right? He says, speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, um, which he summed back up for us. Yeah, and I think a lot of what, um, what he's talking about here too is that, just that reality too, that we live in view of the, the final day. And so this, again, functions primarily as law to the one who considers their law breaking to be inconsequential. So, you know, it's um, if you don't care about your sin, you're like, ah, my sin doesn't really matter. It's just a, you know, small little sin, no big deal. God will just kind of wink, wink at it. You know, this is a, a stirring calling that you will be judged under that perfect law on the final day. If that is what you are you know, if you are not trusting in Christ, if that's what you, you know, you think your works, your, that you're good enough, that's what you'll be judged by, absolute perfection, according to the law. And you will be judged without mercy on that day. But to the one who takes their law-breaking seriously, that is, they repent over their law-breaking and, and are, you know, is comforted that mercy triumphs over judgment, again, as Mike was, was talking about. Um, and their works then on the last they will be shown as evidence of their faith and not by that which they are judged before God. Um, and so, you know, James is calling us to, to take a serious, you know, serious stock of how we live. It's not inconsequential. 
Um, again, he's not telling us to live a certain way in order to be saved. Um, but he is speaking the law very sharply, um, you know, and in this context to those who are showing partiality, you know, because he says, you know, by doing so, you've become a transgressor. And this is what, you know, this is what happened. This is the reality. You are, you are guilty of transgressing God's law, all of it. Um, and so mind your life, right? What you do, what you say, you know, remember, you know, that, you know, God's standard still applies to you, Christian. It's not gone. And this is how we are to live. And so we need, we need that, uh, that word of law a lot, because it's very, very easy for us to, uh, in our sinfulness, take that gospel message and, and mercy and the grace of God, and then we presume upon it, and we, and we abuse it. Um, not that the gospel causes such abuse, but we abuse it in our sinfulness. And we need to hear that, that law again. And the sinner in us needs to be struck with that law. Remember, the standard is still in place. So be careful how you, how you live and how you act. And when you transgress, repent and be forgiven and go love your neighbor, right? Yep. Well, and like, like Paul said, <clears throat> you know, should we continue sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. We brought that up in another video. Like we know that the grace of God is good, but should we take the logical step and say, hey, if I sin more, I get more grace and that's better? No, absolutely not. Live your life in light of the mercies of God, not to earn his mercies, but in light of those mercies and because of his grace and goodness and uh, freely repent, come to the throne and cast your sin down, trusting that forgiveness is there and that mercy will triumph over judgment. Well, guys, you got any more thoughts on our last paragraph of James here? No? All right. Well, Mike, will you close us up in a word of prayer? Yep. I would love to. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, today, and I thank you for uh, these two men that I get to uh, dig into your word with. And Lord, I thank you for those who are viewing this. May they be encouraged by the hearing of your word and by the conversation that we had. Lord, we asked a lot of questions. Uh, we commented a lot. And help us to always remember that your mercy triumphs over judgment. Help that to be the thing that we live our life by, that we move and uh, do things in accordance to that mercy, that we reach out, that we love our neighbors, not trying to earn your mercy, but realizing that you have given it to us freely. And so because of that, we get to love our neighbor and we reach out to them in the love that you've already expressed to us. And so, Lord, we are grateful for those truths. And we ask you to just be um, with us as we are traversing through this virus, Lord, as we continue to um, plan with the safety of our congregations in mind. And Lord, may we just uh, continue to walk step by step with you leading and guiding us as we move forward. And so Lord, bless the rest of this time. Um, that we have together and may it be an encouragement to those who are listening realizing that you made this all possible through leaving the riches of heaven to take on poverty to take our sinfulness upon yourself so that we could be set free 
that we could be guaranteed eternal life and that spiritually we could be rich. And so we thank you for that truth. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks gents. I appreciate you.